Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Pastor Carl McLaughlin from Calvary Pentecostal Church in Euless, Texas. We're located in Dallas-Fort Worth, where 8 million call DFW home. Whether you're tuning in to Sunday or Wednesday's message, we pray that you will find words of encouragement. It is our mission to provide a positive and encouraging voice in the midst of uncertainty. I pray that you will be blessed by today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. We are so happy you're here. This Wednesday, we heard from Pastor McLaughlin as he began a new teaching series covering the oneness of God. His message was full of scriptural evidence that proves there is only one God. Doctrine is truly powerful, and we hope you are encouraged by this episode. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Thank you for your patience in bearing with me when we have to take care of some church business. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, and then I will read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Our subject is God is one, explanations of New Testament passages. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and was received up into glory. Again, our subject is God is one, explanations of New Testament passages. Can we pray together before you're seated? I love you, Lord. I thank you, Jesus. I pray for your will to be done here tonight. I pray for understanding of the scripture. Pray, God, that you would lead us tonight open up our minds, open up our hearts, open up our spirits to your word. Oh God, let your word bring revelation to us. We love you so much, Lord, and we give you praise. Everyone said in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The central theme of both the Old and the New Testament is one God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see emphatically and we see clearly that there was one God that created the world. In the beginning, God, singular. It did not allude to, it did not infer, nor did it imply that there was a second God, God the Son, that stood beside God the Father, and created the world. However, people do say that the Logos in John chapter 1, or the Word, 
was with God as a second person, and that that second person that they would term God the Son created the world. However, according to Scripture, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Elohim. Elohim. It's one. El meaning power. The suffix I am is a plural, and oftentimes what they will say is, well, that was a plurality of gods. It was a plurality of possibilities by one God who is Elohim. So he is a God with a plurality of possibilities, but he is not divided, and there is not more than one God. It was one God that created the world, and because he has a plurality of possibilities intrinsically inside of himself, he can also manifest himself as Son and as Holy Spirit while remaining one distinct God. Amen. Amen. So we see this as a central theme when you move into the book of Revelation and you see in Revelation chapter 4 and in Revelation chapter 22 verses 4 and 5, you see clearly that there's one throne and that there's one God and that there's one visible face and that he has one name. So from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, the golden thread throughout the scripture, 66 books of the Bible, there is one God who has manifested himself in one visible form, and that one visible form is the fullness of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, who is Jehovah Savior. Amen. Old Testament, New Testament. Any view other than a monotheistic, so mono meaning one, theistic God, monotheistic, big word, all it means is one God, monotheistic. Theism, theology, all of that denotes God or a study of God, mono, one. And, and so when we say monotheism, we are literally talking about one God. It's just a formal way to say one God. So, any view other than a monotheistic view of God is simply not scriptural. Why the strict exclusive teaching of the doctrine of one God? One of the reasons, one of the many reasons, is because Jesus himself said in John chapter 8 verse 24, I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. We know that in the King James Version, the word or the term he is italicized, which was not in the original manuscript. So literally Jesus is saying, if you believe not that I am, and that was a direct reference to I am or Jehovah of the Old Testament. Jesus is proclaiming, it is a self-proclamation that he is Jehovah. And he said this is not optional and it's not just a matter of opinion or theory. He said if you don't believe that I am Jehovah, you will die in your sins. It is an, a salvation matter what we believe about this subject of one God. Deuteronomy 6.4, hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. <clears throat> Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am first, and I am the last. Beside me, what? Beside me there is no God. If that's true, then how can you have God the Son and God the Holy Ghost? If the Bible is true that he said there is no God beside me. There is only one God. He said there's not one beside me, there's not one before me, there's not one after me. He said I am first, I am last, I am alpha, I am omega. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said I am first, I am last, I am alpha, I am omega. Jesus was proclaiming to be Jehovah of the Old Testament. He said you're going to know the truth and the truth is going to set you free. I'll tell you firsthand, I was baptized both ways. I was baptized in the titles, name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then when I came to the Pentecostal church, it wasn't just raising your hands. It wasn't just praying out loud. It was the way you baptized. And when I went through the scriptures and I learned and I discovered that no one in the Bible was ever baptized in the titles, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You cannot, in fact, it's like the old preacher said, and he, he put that article in the newspaper, and he sent the news. Y'all know what the newspaper is? Y'all know what the newspaper is? It's not, it's not here. In fact, the Star-Telegram will get you, because if you try to read it here, and it is, you know, you read it for about two articles, or, you know, and all of a sudden it'll say, do you want to subscribe? You can't go any further. Well, no, I don't. I want to read it free. The old preacher, the old preacher put in the newspaper, he said, if you can find anywhere in the Bible that anyone was baptized in the titles Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, I will give you $500. So there was someone that said, oh, I'll find it. And he showed up at the church and said show me in the bible where there was anyone that was ever baptized in the titles father son and holy ghost after not too long of a discussion there was never one instance that anyone was ever baptized in the titles and that man didn't get his five hundred dollars but he did get baptized in the name of jesus christ if you just let the bible speak for itself Take away history, take away denominations, take away my family and your family that was stooped in tradition that we say, if I embrace this, that means they're wrong. Don't even approach it that way. Just approach it as, I want to be right with the Bible. Let God deal with all of that other. You with me? Can we clap our hands and give him praise? You see, it feels good to know that you and I were baptized the way that they baptized in the Bible. We can literally go back and point chapter, verse, and scripture and say, I've, I followed exactly what the apostle said to follow. Because the apostle said, no other foundation can any man lay than that which was laid, which is Christ Jesus. Well, there, there's a problem then with the Nicene Creed. There's a problem then when the, with the Constantinople Creed and the Athanasian Creed because they built a whole new foundation that's on sand.
Problem is, the political world and the then religious world bought into that, and so now then songwriters sing songs like, holy, 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 God in three persons. And so it comes on and people sing it and sing it and sing it, and if you sing it and you say it long enough, it gets embedded in the conscience, or at least in the subconscious, to where all of a sudden now in the subconscious you start reading the Bible and you interpret certain difficult passages through a Trinitarian lens, which a Trinitarian lens is not even biblical. It didn't even occur. And the writers, one of the four principles that we'll learn together, the New Testament writers did not even think in terms of three persons. They just didn't. That didn't even occur until mm, when they started when they started dabbling a little bit with with Greek Hellenism and Greek philosophy, and there it, it kind of bubbled up and surfaced at least into two gods. Well, then it moved forward into 325 and then 381 A.D. to where to where then it was a fully full blown Trinitarian doctrine. Preceding that, nothing here that even talks about it. And, and so we have to make sure that when we're reading the Bible, we're reading the Bible through a oneness lens, not a historical Trinitarian lens that we're misinterpreting the scripture. You with me? <clears throat> Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Beside me there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming shall come. Let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no rock. I know not one. God said, I don't know another God beside me. Revelation 4, 2. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. If you're wondering what we're going to see and who we're going to see throughout all of eternity, there will be one throne and one God sitting on that throne throughout eternity. When we come across scriptures that sound like there's a plurality of gods or more than one God in the Godhead, each of those passages must harmonize with the rest of God's word and cannot be interpreted in a vacuum. A text out of context is a pretext. And there, is, there, there are a couple of formal terms. One is exegesis, the other is eisegesis. Those are big words that all they mean is to do an exegetical study, is to look at the historical setting of it, is to look at the biblical setting of it, is to look at the literary setting of it, and then it's also to look at the practical application of it. So when you are interpreting a scripture, it has to go through that spiral or that progression right there to, to come to a proper conclusion of the scripture. So then you're allowing text to interpret text. 
The problem is that someone will read one passage of scripture and they will interpret it from a Western lens or a Western perspective or a historical theology perspective. And so they will, they will interpret it or misinterpret it. That's what is, is called eisegesis. That means that you have read your own interpretation into the passage of scripture. So when we're looking at difficult to understand passages in regard to the Godhead, that passage has to harmonize with the entire body of Scripture. And you cannot take one verse and interpret it based on that one verse. Otherwise, you end up violating the very nature of God. God is invisible. And he manifested himself in flesh as the Son of God. Not God the Son, but as the Son of God. So there are some terms that you need to be real comfortable with. You need to be comfortable with the term God the Father, because that's scriptural. You need to be comfortable with the term Son of God. But don't make the mistake of saying God the Son, because you will not find that in the Bible anywhere. Son of God, be comfortable with that. Learn how to converse with that term. Son of man, be real comfortable with that. Holy Ghost, be real comfortable with that, but not God the Holy Ghost. That is not a biblical term. That is a misinterpretation of the nature of God and the person of God. And so be comfortable. We are not, listen to me, listen to me. If you go to Calvary Pentecostal Church, we are not Jesus-only people. We believe in the Father. We believe in the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that these are three in one, not distinct persons. One person, one God who manifested himself in the flesh. So we absolutely believe in the Father. We absolutely believe in the Son, Son of Man, Son of God. And we absolutely believe in the Holy Ghost. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, who can quote it? For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And these three are one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So according to Paul, there is only one bodily form of God. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Prior to the incarnation at Bethlehem, there was no physical form of God. Okay, so listen to me. A couple little pet peeves here. Don't, don't say that Jesus Christ pre-existed and he was physically in the fiery furnace with the three Hebrew children. I had somebody, I, I had that happen. Like, you know, somebody from the church that put that out there. It's like, mm-mm. Listen to me real clear. There is no bodily manifestation of God preceding the incarnation. It took Bethlehem in Judea to bring forth the Son of God. Prior to that, there is no preexistent Christ. He is not the angel of the Lord of the Old Testament. That is a theophany, but it is not a second person in the Godhead. One of, one of the real simple ways to look at that is say, okay, well, let's, let's run with that thought. So what if there was a physical second person? Where did that physical second person go when Mary conceived and carried a child for nine months? And then he grew 
as a boy, adolescent, into manhood. Where did that person go if he was there before the incarnation? You with me? So let's, let's look at some principles. Four principles. Four principles. Number one, these are principles in relation to the Godhead. So my primary sources, just so that you'll know, and, and where I'm pulling from and studying from, is I'm studying about three different books of David Bernard's. Um, I'm studying some commentaries, and, and then I do just research on oneness versus Trinitarianism. My primary books that I'm studying are The Oneness of God, The Essentials of Oneness, and, and the, the Oneness Trinitarian Controversy from 100 to 300 AD. So, so those are the three to four books that I'm studying and, and, and extracting information and trying to distribute that to you. Number one, number one, principles in relation to the Godhead. Number one, when we see a plurality, especially a duality used in reference to Jesus, we must think of the humanity and deity of Jesus Christ. There is a real duality, but it is not a duality of persons. It is a distinction between spirit and in flesh, not a distinction of persons. Let me give you an example. Let's look at, let's look at an example of his humanity, and then let's look at an example of his deity. An example of his humanity, Luke 2, 48 through 52. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, I get a kick out of this story. Because it's like, if you ever wanted to know if Jesus was fully human, this story shows you he was fully human. He's about 12 years old, about 12 years old, and he gets in trouble from his mom and dad. I mean, every 12-year-old is going to upset mom and dad. And literally, so, so when the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he was tempted in all points like as we, he was even tempted at 12 years old to talk back to his mom and dad. But he was without sin. He was perfect. Just look at the story. Read this. Listen to the way Mary talks to Jesus. I mean, we wouldn't do that. We know who that is. Mary, did you know? <laughs> See, but here's what, that's what, why'd you do? Some of you that were going, a little song in there. Back to the story. So, when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, why do you seek me? Who's he? Is he talking from his human role right here? Or is he talking from his deity role right here? Huh, why are you seeking me? That caused that mama to step back and go, who am I talking to right now? This is the one I changed the diapers. This is the one I, no, no, no. I'm not being sacrilegious here. That's, that's, he was truly human. He was truly human. And all of a sudden he asked one question. Did you not know that I must be busy about my father's business? 
you see that he's talking in a human role as a child, even as a, just like you would say, Father, I worship you. In his totally human role, he could feel everything that you and I feel in that human role. And that does not mean that there are two, even though he's relating to the Father. You with me? He has to, in order to be able to sympathize with us. But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth, and was what? We're dealing with his humanity here, aren't we? But his mother kept all of these things in her heart. And Jesus did what? Totally, completely, 100% humanity right here. We're just dealing with the human side, son of man. Totally human side right here. That does not mean that he divested any of his deity. He just experienced everything a human experiences. Powerful. When you think about the God that we're serving, there's not one thing you and I experience that he can't say, I understand. I know exactly what you're going through. He increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. An example of his deity, Luke 5, 20 through 24. When he saw their faith, he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven. Who's, who only has authority to forgive sins? God. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and he said to them, why are you reasoning within your hearts? What are, you, what are you thinking about right now? You know that only God can forgive sins, and you just forgave sins. Are you saying you're God? He knew everything that they were thinking. Listen to what he says in verse 23. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He is dealing with his fleshly role, human role, but at the same time, he is disclosing and showing them, I am God and I have power on earth to forgive sins. Ultimately, the reason why is I'm about to hang on a cross and I'm going to shed my blood. And when I shed my blood, I have the authority and the power to forgive and wash away and remit all of the sins of the entire world. At that time, both present and in the future. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, a drug addict can walk through the back door, the doors of the church, come to this altar, throw their hands in the air, and every single sin they remember and sins they don't remember. The blood of Jesus Christ is able to forgive that sin. Impossible without God becoming flesh because it takes blood. It takes blood to forgive sin. The invisible God who did not have a body had to take on a body and become visible and have blood coursing through his veins so that he could become the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. That didn't mean he was crucified from the foundation of the world. That was in the concept. That's the logos. That's the concept, the thought, the reasoning and the logic of God. That he said in the dispensation of the fullness of times, I might gather together all things in one in Christ Jesus cross of Calvary. 
So at the cross of Calvary, gathered together all things, all things, past, present, future. He's in heaven, on earth, under the earth, all things. In one. When he was hanging on that cross, not only was it redemption for mankind, he redeemed the cursed world. We're living in a probationary world. The first heaven and the first earth are going to burn away, melt away with a fervent heat. It was only through the cross of Calvary that even the earth will be reconciled and we will have a new heaven and a new earth. He purchased all of that. In the garden, the world was cursed, the ground. That's why there are thorns and stickers when you run into the backyard. But the world to come, uh-uh, lion and lamb are going to lay down with one another. Children. All of that occurred at the cross. All of that occurred at the cross. Number two, when we see a plural in relation to God, we must view it as a plurality of roles or relationships to mankind, not a plurality of persons. When we read a difficult passage relative to Jesus, we should ask if it describes him in his role as God, or does it describe him in his role as man, or sometimes both. As the preceding verse, he said, I'm the son of man, forgive sin on earth. That's both. That's humanity and deity together, that passage. Does he speak as God or as man in this instance? Let me give you an example. An example in John chapter 3, verse 10 through 17. He's speaking as God and as man. Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? He's talking to Nicodemus right here. And this is, this is right after Nicodemus has a discussion with him. He said, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again of the water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, and Nicodemus, he's asking these questions. And so, and so Jesus responds back to him. He said, Nicodemus, how do you not know these things? You are a master of Israel, and you don't know these things. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know. And testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. Watch what he says, verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you believe me not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is... What? What? Who's talking right here? Son of man. Where is he? On earth. But notice what he's saying. Son of man is in heaven. So his humanity was planted on earth having a conversation with Nicodemus. But his omnipresence is everywhere and cannot be contained in one physical body. That's why he can be right here, right now, and in the entire universe because he is God. And that's why he can be in Eulis in South Africa. He can fill people with the Holy Ghost here. He can fill people with the Holy Ghost all over the world. He's the Son of Man, but he is also mighty God and everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's everywhere at all times. 
And he was making a declaration that though the Son of Man is standing in front of you, conversing with you, I'm also in heaven, my deity side, my invisible deity, omnipresent, omniscient side, cannot be contained to right here, right now. I cover everything at all times. And he's not just here right now and everywhere. He's in the future. That's how big God is. All the fullness dwelleth in him bodily, but that body could not contain everything that he is. Can we clap our hands to the Lord? God is one. And so he also makes a proclamation here in verse 13 that earth was not his origination. Earth was his visitation. He's forever. He has no beginning or ending. That's the difference between being eternal and everlasting. He's everlasting. We will be eternal. With me? And then, he, and then he goes into humanity. Son of man, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world <clears throat> that he gave his only begotten Son. This is, sec- this is a role. This is just a different role of the one God. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son, spirit, flesh, invisible, visible, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Number three, the third principle. Jesus spoke and acted both as God and as a genuine human. And some statements emphasize one role more than the other. Everything that we can say or do or feel as humans, Jesus Christ said, did, or felt as a human, except that he never sinned. He was tempted, but he never sinned. In every way that we can relate to God, Jesus in his human role related to God, except that he never needed to repent and he did not ever need to be born again. At the same time, the Spirit of God dwelt fully in him. He was God manifested in the flesh. An example of Jesus' human side relating to God while at the same time not diminishing, possessing the fullness of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So in his complete human role, he was tempted and felt the pressure of that temptation, just like we do. Yet as God, he did not sin, and it was impossible for him to sin as God. So, because of that, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. Let me read this verse in the New King James Version. For we do not have a high priest which cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Number four. Number four. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to close right here at number four. I'm not going to try to get to the, the, the contrast between oneness and, and uh, Trinitarianism. Uh, we'll pick back up next Wednesday. So number four. The New Testament writers and audience, this is so important. This is so important. The New Testament writers and audience had no conception of the doctrine of the Trinity, which was still far into the future. Okay? Our, our dilemma is that we're looking back, and we're looking back from 325 all the way to 2023 with a history of Trinitarianism. When the scripture was written, which Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, um, and, then, and then from Pentecost, 80, 30, and then one of the last books of the Bible, the, the, actually three, the Johannine epistles, in 90 to 95. So you have all of this time, you have all of this time up to 100 AD, and then even stretching into 300, there literally was no Trinitarian thought because it was not introduced formally until 325. So they didn't even write nor did they read the scripture with any kind of multiple gods, polytheistic, Trinitarian form of the Godhead. They literally embraced and believed the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one Lord. They were not confused by virtue of what Matthew was saying when he said, go ye therefore and baptize, or Jesus was saying to him, baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. They knew that there was one singular name for these three roles. That's why when you get into the historical book, the book of Acts, you only see them baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no contradiction in the Bible. And they never baptized in the Trinity. <clears throat> the, the writers of the New Testament came from a strict monotheistic Jewish background. One God was just no issue to them. It just wasn't an issue to them. They didn't even have to, they didn't have to teach like this. They didn't have to talk about this because it was no issue. Some passages may sound Trinitarian at first glance because Trinitarians through the centuries have used them and interpreted them according to their doctrine. However, to the early church, who had no concept of the future doctrine of the Trinity, the same passages are easily and readily understandable. There was no thought of contradicting either strict monotheism or the deity of Jesus Christ. Stand with me. Modern Trinitarianism was first officially affirmed at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It was more definitely and conclusively stated by the Council of Constantinople in 381. 
this creed, and then later what was called the Athanasian Creed, which was composed sometime in the 5th to 8th centuries, are the two most accepted and authoritative statements of Trinitarianism. The Council of Constantinople in 381 was actually an expansion of the Nicene Creed in 325 regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and actually, it was a very slow development. It was a very slow development. So this Trinitarian doctrine, we, we think that it's always been around or just part of the scripture. It was a very, very, very slow development before it became a formalized doctrine by primarily the Catholic Church. So this is interesting, and I'll close with this. This is according to the Britannica Encyclopedia. And um, dealing with Trinitarianism. Neither the word Trinity nor the explicit doctrine appears in the New Testament, nor did Jesus and his followers intend to contradict the Shema in the Hebrew scriptures. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The earliest Christians, however, had to cope with the implications of the coming of Jesus and of the presumed presence and power of God among them. All of this occurred at Pentecost. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit were associated in such New Testament passages as the Great Commission, where Jesus said, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We have to take a look at that and say, did the early apostles obey that when they baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? And people were actually rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Or did they disobey and create an aberrant doctrine outside of Matthew 28, 19? If we embrace that thought, then we may as well throw this whole book away. We may as well throw the whole book away. We cannot say it's inspired and we can't base our life on it. But if we say that all of the apostles, and in Acts chapter 19, when John's disciples were rebaptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and there was only one form of baptism throughout the book of Acts, and that one singular name, the name of Jesus, according to Acts chapter 4, verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 22, verse 16, calling on the name of the Lord, being baptized, arising, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The term call is to invoke in baptism, literally to speak the name because people will argue with you. Well, it doesn't really matter what you say when someone goes into the water. Oh, it does matter what you say. You don't think a specific name matters, go to the bank and try to get money out of your bank account and don't use your name. <laughs> Sorry, honey. You're not getting any money out of that bank account until you can show ID and that's your name. They're going to look at that picture and go, uh, lost a little bit of hair, but it looks like you. Need to know your name. It's important. It's important. It's a beautiful truth. 
beautiful truth. And you know, one of the hardest things for me when I got into the church, I went through it, man, I went through it. It messed with me because there was no one more precious to me than my grandmother. My grandmother and my grandfather, but there was just something about Mimi all my life. Like my Mimi, that's my Mimi. There's just nobody like my Mimi. And I was 20 years of age, I was shown everything that I just taught you. And I had to make a tough decision. Am I really going to embrace this? Because if I embrace this, what that's also saying to my whole family, Mimi, Paul, you're not right. You're not right the way you embraced. But I'm just telling you, when this revelation comes to you, you fall in love with it. And there's nothing or no one in this world that will make you depart from this truth. It's awesome and powerful. Don't make the mistake that I made. Man, I got so full of zeal and I walked in, my, I freaked my mom out. My little sister, I walked in one night and you know the preacher preached, man, we gotta reach everybody, they're going to hell. So, man, I'm driving home Thursday night after church, and I'm going, I got to read. They got to get the Holy Ghost tonight. I'm crying. I'm praying over my family. I'm praying over my mom, my sister. I walk into the house. I say, Mom, Audra, my little sister, y'all need to repent and be baptized. You're going to hell. They're looking at me going, <laughs> lot of zeal, man. No wisdom. No wisdom. <laughs> like McLaughlin, chill out, man. Just remember how patient God was with you. You know the story. Fast forward. My grandfather had Alzheimer's. Two facilities in Texas at that time that would take private pay up to hospice and then ultimately to conclude life. One of them was James L. West in downtown Fort Worth. My grandfather was put in James L. West. We needed to find a house for my grandmother to live with us. The Lord blessed us with the house that we still live in today. It's got a beautiful apartment behind it. My Mimi lived there. I got, I got to have my Mimi in my house. My kids, my kids got to experience Mimi's homemade pancakes. I'll never forget it. We're at 709 Midway Drive. It was a Sunday morning. Brother Russo was there. Brother Prince was there. I don't know what was going on. It was just, I was preaching. I'm preaching oneness. I'm preaching Holy Ghost. My Mimi sat just to my left. And I'm in the middle of preaching that message on baptism, Holy Ghost. And I look down. And all of a sudden, I see these tears running down my Mimi's face. And I'm going, it's happening the revelation has come and it's happening right now and I gave that altar call my Mimi was she 82 84 she was 82 she was 82 my Mimi came out and she came she's a little bitty thing man I could carry her like this 
And she threw her hands up in the air. And I said, Mimi. And she looked at me before I could say anything. She said, Carl, Michael. She said, God spoke to me and said, today's my day. I want the Holy Ghost and I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And I grabbed my Mimi's hands and I said, Mimi, let's pray together. And we started praying. And I said, Mimi, just pray out loud and let the Spirit of God come into your heart and speak out of your mouth and let him speak the words. And I'm telling you, in minutes, I look and all of a sudden, my Mimi's lips are stammering and shaking and I'm going, it is happening right now. And I'm like, oh God, let her get it. And, and all of a sudden, these words that she had never spoken in all her life, having Bible studies, man, I'd go to their house in Victoria with search for truth. I was going through Cornelius and my grandfather was going, mm-mm, mm-mm. I'm looking at my Mimi and I'm looking at my sister and I'm like, man, I'm all alone out here just swimming, just swimming in it, swimming in doctrine. Years later, there's my Mimi. That seed got planted years before. She got the baptism of the Holy Ghost, got into the baptismal tank and I baptized my grandmother in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Stick to one God. Stick to the truth. Don't compromise it. They're watching you. You just hold on to the truth. Pray for them. Live it. Learn it. Learn it. Thank you so much for listening. This message was so powerful and led to a touching altar call. It is incredible to be in his presence together. If you would like to stay connected with the church, podcast, and upcoming events, you can visit us at calvaryulist.org or on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Calvary Pentecostal Church. God bless.